Welcome to church. We're so glad that you are here. If you have your Bible, would you kindly take it out? Big welcome to all of our campuses, our television and online audience. We are glad that everybody is here to hear a word from God. Would you take your Bible out and hold it up nice and high? If you need a Bible, you can flag down one of the ushers. Let's make this declaration of our faith together. Ready, go. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all that God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, I will hide his word in my heart so I can be all that he has destined me to be. Amen and amen. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? We are going to the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, picking up from the same text that we looked at last week, beginning in verse number 39. Luke chapter 1, verse number 39. The Bible says, Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias, and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on all those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty away from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham. Abraham and to his seed forever and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Today we are turning our attention once again to what is the most famous of all the Christmas prayers song. It's called the Magnificat. It means my soul magnifies. And we brought out last week how when we realize what has happened in the incarnation of Christ, our soul ought to magnify the Lord. This is the greatest of all miracles, some have argued. Some have said this is even greater than the resurrection. I'm not sure I agree, but listen to what one person said. God became a man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the son of God was a reality. And the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. And although the angel told Mary this, it wasn't until she visited a Elizabeth, that she realized what had happened to her and the penny dropped and she sang this prayer song that sheds light on what Christmas is and that is it's a revolution. Christmas is by every definition of the word a total revolution because Christmas changes everything. Let's pray. 
Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, would you minister by your grace and by your power to each and every heart as we delve into why Christmas changes everything. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. Well, last week we left off looking at this prayer song and we talked about how Mary said three things about God. She said that God is mighty, he's holy, and he's merciful. And we said that we Christmas means because of those three things that because God is holy, he had to do something about our sins. Because he is merciful, he wanted to do something about our sins. And because he's mighty, he was able to do something about our sins. And the reason why he did something about our sins based on those three things is because of love. The motivation of the incarnation was the love of God for humanity. That he doesn't want any to perish, but that all should come to eternal life in him. And so Christmas is not good advice. It's not something that we, we, we hear and we turn over a new leaf and we say, okay, I'm going to practice that advice in my life. Christmas is not good advice. Christmas is good news. And the good news is that you and I cannot do anything to save ourselves, but God loved us so much that he did it for us by sending his only son as a substitute for our sin. And that news that you receive that changes your life should so revolutionize your life that it should change absolutely any everything about you. Christmas is a revolution and ought to fundamentally turn your life upside down. It ought to change the way you walk and the way you talk and the way you act and the way you believe and the way you respond and the way you pray and the way you plan and the way you prioritize and the way you spend and the way you believe and the way that you live because Christmas changes everything. If it's true, it is the greatest news that mankind can ever, ever hear. And so I want you to look at three things, three ways that Christmas changes everything. Christmas is a psychological revolution. Notice what Mary says. Mary says this, she says, And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, from henceforth, all generations will call, call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Christmas is a psychological revolution because it ought to change the way we see ourselves. What do I mean? It means that Christmas, it changes the way we ought to perceive who we are. Culture tells us, look at yourself as strong. Look at yourself as self-sufficient. Look at yourself as capable. Look at yourself as successful. Look at yourself as self-reliant. Look at yourself as having it all together. But Christmas changes that because it forces us to see ourselves in need of help. It forces us to see ourselves as flawed. It forces us to see ourselves as weak. How so, Pastor? Well, imagine uh, you're opening gifts on Christmas morning and, and one particular friend gives you this gift and you open it up in excitement and it's a dieting book. And then you open another book from another friend and it's a book on self-improvement and it's a book on overcoming selfishness. selfishness. Well, in order for you to say thank you to those gifts, you'd have to admit that you're fat and self-centered. In other words, those gifts 
force you to take a look at yourself and you can either reject them because you don't need them or you could receive them because you do. And along comes Christmas and Christmas gives us a gift that causes us to swallow our pride. Causes us to swallow our uh, cultural understanding that we are self-sufficient and that we've got it all together and that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and that we can be sufficient in and of ourselves and all that. And it forces us to look at ourselves in need of help that there is nothing that you and I could do in and of ourselves in order to save ourselves. And the only option we have if the Christmas story is true and it is, is to repent of our sins and receive this Christmas gift acknowledging that we need a savior. Matter of fact, when you listen to what the Bible says about us outside of Christ, we need help. Ephesians chapter two, verse number one. And you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. What is it saying? It's saying that Christmas comes along and God offers us a gift. And this gift causes us to acknowledge the fact that we need help, that we are lost and undone in our sin. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in this world. In other words, without Christ. We are not together. We are not self-reliant. We are not successful. We are not capable. We are not able to make ourselves right with God. We need help. Romans says it this way. For if when you were enemies, enemies of God, you were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Notice this. We are being categorized unequivocally every human being as enemies, as lost, as having no hope, dead in our trespasses and sin. The apostle Paul looked at himself one day and he said, oh wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, without Jesus I'm hopeless. Isaiah looked at himself one day, he said, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Christmas comes along. It's a revolution, a psychological revolution. It forces us to realize that we are flawed and lost and need a savior and his name is Jesus. And Mary says that. Notice again, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. When she realized what was taking place, when she realized that inside of her was not just a son, but the Lord of glory and Savior of the world, she said, I need that Savior. I need that help. For he has regarded the lowly estate. Why does she consider herself lowly? Well, because she was lost without Christ. When Mary accepted, though, Jesus Christ, and what was happening, she changed her thought process. She went from I'm lost 
to I'm blessed. See, Christmas is a psychological revolution because it changes how God sees us and therefore how we should see ourselves in Christ. Mary says, for behold, henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. In other words, it's a psychological revolution because it changes the way I see myself outside of Christ. I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm incapable. I'm not self-sufficient. I don't have it all together. But once I get in Christ, it's a psychological revolution because it gives me an identity better than the world can give me because in Christ I'm blessed. In Christ I'm favored in Christ. I'm an heir in Christ. I'm an heir, joint heir with Christ Jesus. In Christ, I'm seated with he- in heavenly places. In Christ, I'm a new creation. In Christ, I'm the apple of God's eye. In Christ, I am worth God dying for. In Christ, I'm worth him leaving heaven and coming to earth. In Christ, I'm, I'm worth him giving up his deity and taking on your, our humanity. In Christ, it changes everything. It changes. It's a psychological revolution because it teaches you that your identity and who you are is not based on your self-sufficiency but based on who you are in Christ but then Christmas changes everything because it is a sociological revolution it changes the way that we see others look at verse number 50 Mary says and his mercy is on those who fear him From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. Watch this. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones, exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich, he sent away empty. What does that mean? It means the gospel of grace lifts up those who the world puts down and says you are just as valuable in the eyes of God as anyone else. It shows us that the upper class, because of our privileges, are not better than those who are lower in society's eyes. That in God, money doesn't make you better than somebody. Education doesn't make you better than somebody. Job status doesn't make you better than somebody. Power and influence and lack of struggles in life or gender or race or morality. None of that doesn't make you better than anybody else. In Christ, there is no human accomplishments or accolades There is no human uh, uh, resume that makes you better. Matter of fact, all that matters is Jesus. We are all, matter of fact, one in Christ. Listen, Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Notice the the complete diametrically opposed uh, 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 places on the paradigm or social structure. Jew and Greek, in their minds, opposite ends. Slave and free, in their minds, opposite ends. Male and female, in Bible times, opposite ends. But notice what he says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christmas changes everything. It is a sociological revolution because it changes how we see other people. It changes everything. And the gospel of Matthew really drives this point home because of the way it opens up. You remember last week we talked about genealogy, 23 and me, right? Before you had to spit into a vial and send it off in the mail. 
Matthew opens up the gospel with a genealogical record that we often skip over and we point it out because most of us don't know how to pronounce half the names that are in there. And we think, well, what value is this? And we found out last week that Matthew doesn't begin his gospel with once upon a time. It's not fairy tale language. It is the language of history. Matthew is telling us what I'm about to tell you is rooted and grounded. In fact, Jesus is not a myth like the other gods. Jesus has a genealogy. He came from people. He really lived. He really spent life on this earth. Here's his father. Here's his grandfather. Here's his great grandfather. Here who's, who came from him. Jesus really did happen. Now what's interesting about biblical genealogies is they were, in Bible times, resumes. In other words, if you wanted to present yourself to the world, you would share your genealogy. And as resumes go today, people tinker with their resumes. Nobody ever puts on the resume, got fired from work because I kept showing up late. That's not on the resume, right? All they do is put the accomplishments and the accolades. And if you read through most biblical genealogies, for instance, Herod the Great was known to purge people from his genealogy because he didn't want to be associated with those kinds of people. But when you come to the genealogy of Matthew, again, sociological revolution, you find that it is unlike any other uh, genealogical record that has ever been written. To begin with, there are five women. In the genealogy. They're all mothers to Jesus. Now, this is not unusual to us in my genealogy. I want my mom in the genealogy. I want my wife in the genealogy. I want my daughter in the genealogy. But in Bible times, women were never placed in genealogies. It was a patriarchal society, and so they were never even named. But here we have gender outsiders in the genealogy of Jesus. Furthermore, when you realize who these women were, three of them were Gentiles, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. They were Canaanites and Moabites. To the ancient Jews, these nations were unclean. They weren't allowed even in the temple to worship. They were racial outsiders. So in the genealogy of Jesus, you have gender outsiders, you have racial outsiders, but then the genealogy gets even more shocking when you recall what these women were tied to. For instance, Matthew chapter 1 verse number 3 says, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, that may not shock any of you that that is in the genealogy of Jesus, except if you know the story of Judah and Tamar. The story of Judah and Tamar was that Judah, who was a man, who was the uh, father-in-law of Tamar, was unjust to Tamar. All of his sons died and he was responsible in order to take care of her and he left her out to dry. And so what she wound up doing is she wound up dressing up as a prostitute to trick him on a day she knew he would be getting drunk into sleeping with her and he impregnated his own daughter-in-law and that's where the line of Jesus came from. And that's in the genealogy. These are moral outsiders. This is incest in every way, shape, and form. And he puts that right into the story. And then, of course, you have Rahab in the story. Rahab in the lineage of Jesus. Well, who was she? She was a prostitute. She's in the lineage of Jesus. And then it almost seems like God redeems himself. Because if you read through the genealogy, when you get to verse number 6, it says, And Jesse begot David the king. Finally, from biblical times, we have prestige 
in the genealogy. Finally, in biblical terminology, we have somebody that is a blue-blooded aristocrat in the genealogy of Jesus, except Matthew doesn't end it there. Matthew goes, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And as Matthew is writing this, he's intentionally telling us to remember that whole story. And by not putting Bathsheba in here, it's not a slight against Bathsheba. That was who Solomon's mother was. It's a slight against David for us to remember that David the king had an adulterous affair with somebody who he should have never touched because it was one of his best friend's wives. And if you remember the story, when David was on the run... From Saul. Saul was trying to kill David. There was a group of mighty men that stayed by David, that hung out in caves with David, that gave up their life for David to protect David, and one of them was Uriah. And then one day when Israel was going to war, and David was now in the palace, David walks out on the rooftop, and he sees Uriah's wife bathing, and knowingly calls her to the palace, impregnates her, and from her comes Solomon. And he's in the genealogy of Jesus too. And so when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, what you find is you find moral outsiders, adulteresses and adulterers and incestuous relationships and prostitutes. You find gender outsiders and you, you find racial outsiders all in the family of Jesus. What does this mean? It means Christmas is a sociological revolution. People who are excluded by society and even the law of God can become part of the family of God. The message is, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you slept with your father-in-law, committed murder, or made money turning tricks. If you repent of your sins in Christ and receive Christ as Savior, you are saved by the grace of God. No matter how morally stained you are, the Christmas story says that faith in the shed blood of Christ will make you white as snow but it also tells us no matter how many power credentials you have David no matter how successful you are in the world's eyes no matter how much influence you have you too need a savior Christmas is revolutionary it changes how we should look at anybody You're no better than the bum on the street. I'm no better than the bum on the street. You're no better than somebody, and I'm no better than somebody who's got a different color skin to you. You're no better, I'm no better than somebody whose job is is minimum wage when your job is in the corner office. Nobody is better than anybody else. We are one in Christ. We all need a Savior. But then Christmas, number three, is a theological Revolution. It changes everything because it changes the way that we should see God. Look at what Mary says, Luke chapter 1, verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. The promise of the Messiah was centuries, even millennia, Old before the angel came to Mary and told her about the child she was about to bear. In other words, in the world of Jewishdom, it looked like God had forgotten his promise. 
Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever prayed in, in nothing? Believed in, in nothing? You stood on the promises of God and nothing. And the temptation, when you've prayed and believed, when you've stood and believed, and you've seen nothing in a little bit of time, the temptation is to believe that God is not faithful to his promises. The temptation is to believe that God does not watch over his word waiting to perform it. The temptation is to believe that God is not good. The temptation is to believe that God doesn't care. But along comes Christmas, and Jesus becomes the fulfillment of a promise made centuries, even millennia ago. And the message is, God is not slack concerning his promises but God is rather waiting for the precious fruit of the earth the Christmas message is said another way delays are not denials and denials might even be divine moments let me say it again let me say it again along comes Christmas against the backdrop of God why aren't you intervening Against the backdrop, God has not said anything for 400 years, by the way. At least prior to that, he was speaking by the mouth of prophets. But for the last 400 years, God has said nothing. Have you ever gone through a season of time in your life that seems like 400 years? God has said nothing. God, I I, I used to hear you speaking to my spirit, but, but God, it seems like You're not talking to me anymore. God, you used to answer my prayers so, so quickly. I would pray, and before I knew it, there it was. But God, it seems like this one is is taking too long. God, hello, here I am. Remember me? God hasn't spoken for 400 years. And the temptation for everybody is to believe God is not good and God doesn't care and God is not faithful and God doesn't perform his promises. But along comes Christmas And it proves that delays are not denials. And denials might even be divine moments. Can I remind you of Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph receives a dream from God. And the dream is that the sun, moon, and stars are going to bow down before him. Literally what it means is that his father, his family, and all of the world is going to come to him and bow down before him. And he learns later that he is going to be in charge of all the food in the region during a famine. And he gets this dream. And then the next moment he knows after the dream, how many of you have ever gotten a dream and you think that tomorrow morning when I open my eyes, I'm going to be standing in that dream? You get the dream that God is going to do something good and you think, okay, tomorrow morning when I get up, the dream is just going to appear. And the dream doesn't appear. Well, Joseph got the dream and the next thing he knows, the next day he opens up his eyes in a pit. Thrown into a pit by his brothers. And then the next thing he does, help is on the way, help comes, they start pulling him out of the pit. The only thing that he doesn't know is that they're pulling him out of the pit in order to sell him into slavery. And then the next thing he finds himself, he finds himself in Potiphar's house who was an Egyptian captain of the army, if you will. And he finds himself in Potiphar's house, and life begins to go good, and maybe he thinks, okay, I'm getting closer to my dream, but then Potiphar's wife lies about Joseph, said she tries to, he tries to sleep with her. Potiphar puts Joseph in prison. Now we're 13 years after the promise. Not 13 days, not 13 months. Can I just tell you, compared to people in the Bible, we have such weak faith. Our faith is so weak, we, we start questioning God after 13 hours. 13 days we've done lost our mind. Lost our faith. Stop coming to church. Start questioning the Bible. 
13 months, we're back in the world again. We're back in the bars again. We're back doing all that nonsense again because the temptation comes along and the temptation is that God is not faithful. God is not true to us. But along comes Christmas and Joseph is in prison. And in prison he meets a butler and a baker and they have dreams in prison and nobody can interpret them. But Joseph does. And then the butler and the baker get out of prison and on their way out Joseph says to him, remember me. And all of a sudden the king has a dream. And when the king has a dream nobody can interpret it. And the butler and the baker they remember Joseph and they say hey there's a guy in prison who can interpret your dream. And so they pull Joseph out of prison and Joseph gets before Pharaoh and he interprets the dream. And Pharaoh makes him second in command of all of Egypt. Now he's the second most powerful man in all the earth. And sure enough Here comes his family. Here comes the world bowing down before him to receive food. What is God saying? God is saying, listen, when it looks like the enemy is playing chess, God is playing checkers. Other way around. When it looks like the enemy has got you cornered, it's just a matter of time before God says checkmate. You see, everything that the enemy sent to discourage Joseph, God said, don't worry about it, Joseph, I got you. I told you the dream was coming to pass. You have to understand that my word does not return to me void, that this delay may have just been a repositioning. It may have been a deposit for something that you needed in order to fulfill my purposes. <laughs> Along comes Christmas. Can I remind you? of the story of Lazarus, Jesus' close friend. Jesus gets word from Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. Lazarus is sick, he's going to die. Matter of fact, they say, your good friend. Matter of fact, they say, the one you love. The one you love. He needs your help, Jesus, come. And the Bible says something very, very peculiar. It says that Jesus waited two days before he went. Now to me, this is like, like the way I was raised, this is like ultimate disrespect. My family lives in New Jersey, but if I get a call that that one of them is sick and ready to die, guess what I'm doing? I'm dropping everything that's going on at that moment. I'm getting in the car. I'm getting a speeding ticket along the way. I'm not pulling over for the cops. I'm going 150 miles an hour. I'm getting there as fast as I can. Jesus gets news. He waits two days. Finally, Jesus arrives there, and by the time he arrives, Lazarus is no longer sick. He's dead. And he's not dead for one day, two days, three days, but four days. And it almost seems like Jesus doesn't care. See, this is the game. This is, this is what's happening in your, in your mind and in your heart as it takes God longer than you thought in order to show up in your life. The enemy begins to throw seeds and plant thoughts. God is not faithful and God doesn't care. And Jesus gets there and Lazarus is dead. And the question is, why did he wait if he knew he was going to die? Because he knew he was going to die. Why did he wait till he was dead four days? Because the Jews believed that if somebody was dead three days, their spirit could return to their body and they could live. But once it was past three days, nobody could ever come back. Jesus said, oh yeah, you, you, think, you think four days is impossible. You think anything plus three is impossible. I'm just going to wait till it's plus three. I'm just going to wait till it is impossible in your mind. I'm just going to wait until you think there is no shot this is ever going to happen so that when I get there, you wanted a healing, but I've got something better for you. I've got a resurrection for you. The delay was not a denial. It was God setting them up for something better. Yeah. 
Can I remind you of one more delay? Jairus, you remember him? His daughter was sickened at the point of death. The ruler of the synagogue comes running to Jesus. And when he comes running to Jesus, he says, please come and lay your hands on my daughter. She lied at home at the point of death. Please come, if you, if you heal her, if you lay your hands on her, she will be healed. And Jesus decides to go. And as Jesus is going, this great crowd is pushing against Jesus in every single way. Jesus cannot walk, but all of a sudden, he feels virtue or anointing leave him. And somebody has touched the hem of his garment and he turns around, he asks who did this even though he knew and he calls this woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years who could not be out in public because of her uncleanness and the one who had the right to order her to be stoned to death was Jairus. And so not only has this woman been caught but this woman has been caught in the presence of somebody who has the authority to kill her and Jesus stops when he is on a time-sensitive miracle where he knows he's got to get there quickly And he stops and he says to the woman, tell me what's happened to you. Translation, excuse me, I I need your testimony. Excuse me, I need you to begin to tell in the company of everybody here, especially in the company of the one that I'm going to his house with. What has happened to you? And the woman tells him the entire story. I mean, she goes from point A all the way to point C. She gives every detail that women are known to give. But in her story, she gives the most important detail. And she said, I remember something. I remember if I could just touch the hem of your garment. The garment was called the wings, the hem. And I knew that the Savior would have healing in his wings. And after she said that, I believe that what Jesus did in his heart, it said, thank you for your testimony. He looked at He looked at Jairus. He said, did you hear what she just said? She just said that the true Messiah would have healing in his wings. Now the delay has become a deposit because Jairus has now heard what he needed to hear in order to receive what God wanted to give him. And Jesus walks into the room and as he's going, word comes from the house of Jairus and the word is don't trouble the master any further. She's not dead any, she's not sick anymore. She's dead. Jesus looks at Jairus, guess what he says? Don't be afraid, only believe. That would have been impossible if he wouldn't have heard the testimony of the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus stopped because he knows the beginning from the end. He knows when I get there, she's going to be dead. And in order for me to give him this miracle, he's going to need to exercise some faith. But his faith is not yet where it needs to be. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to delay my divine appointment with her until he gets the deposit that he needs so that she can be delivered and see the goodness of God. So he stops, not because he was trying to be slow to his promise, but he stops so that Jairus could be ready for his promise and every time God stops it's not because God is trying to watch you struggle God is trying to get you stronger because God knows that when your faith is strong she receives what is Christmas Christmas is a revolution Christmas is a psychological revolution it changes the way that we see ourselves Christmas is a sociological revolution. It changes the way that we see others. But Christmas is also a theological revolution. 
it changes the way that we see God. And God comes into this time in history where everybody has thought and everybody thinks, well, God doesn't care anymore. And God shows up as he, Mary said, as you promised to your servant Abraham. You gave the promise to Abraham. What was the promise? All nations of the earth will be blessed through you. You gave that millennia ago. You gave that centuries ago. God, then you went silent for 400 years. And all of us had thought that you had forsaken us. God, we have gone through so much. And on our minds and in our hearts, we were searching. And so we went to this God. And we went to that God. And this mythical God. And this God of Rome. And that God of Rome. And God, we went all different ways. But now, you've come. Why? Because you are faithful to your servant. Abraham. You are faithful to your people, Israel. God told me to tell you that when God is slow, it's not because God wants to see you struggle. It's so that way that you get what you need, so that you could say with Joseph, when his brothers stood before him, what you meant for evil, God has turned around for good. So that you could say with Mary, all generations shall now call me blessed. God told me to tell you that your best is yet to come. Hold on just a little while longer. Don't you dare give in. Don't you dare let the devil think that God is not faithful. Don't you dare realize that your best is yet to come. That your better days are ahead of you and not behind you. Why? Because Christmas is a revolution. It changes everything. And it proves that it's not going to get worse in your life. It's going to get better. Come on, let's sing it.